It's called Questions About Christmas. And what I did was I took a lot of this from the book, The Case for Christmas by Lee Strobel. And I don't know if you guys have heard of Lee Strobel. He actually wrote The Case for Christ. Have any of you guys ever read, read that book? I suggest you do. And if you have somebody that you, that's unsaved, that's a fantastic book to give to them. It will really give them a clear picture of who Christ was, what he went through on the cross. And, you know, Strobel was basically an atheist lawyer. And he set out to disprove Christ. And in turn, what it did was it changed his life. And now he's a huge steward for the kingdom of God. So what I'm doing today is taking from his book, The Case for Christmas, and I'll be reading some common questions out of the book surrounding Christmas, and I've kind of added my comments along as well. But it's kind of neat and uh, just something a little different today since we're close to Christmas. Now, the first question says, should Christians celebrate Christmas? Now, the debate about whether or not Christians should celebrate Christmas has been raging for centuries. There are equally sincere and committed Christians on both sides of the issue, each with multiple reasons why or why not Christmas should be celebrated in Christian homes. But what does the Bible say? Does the Bible give clear direction as to whether Christmas is a holiday to be celebrated by Christians? First, let's look at some of the reasons why Christians do not celebrate Christmas. One argument against Christmas is that the traditions surrounding the holiday have origins in paganism. Searching for reliable information on this topic is difficult because the origins of many of our traditions are so obscure that sources often contradict one another. Bells, candles, holly, and yuletide decorations are mentioned in the history of pagan worship, but the use of such in one's home certainly does not indicate a return to paganism. While there are definitely pagan roots to some traditions, there are many more traditions associated with the true meaning of Christmas, the birth of the Savior of the world in Bethlehem. Bells are played to ring out the joyous news. Candles are lit to remind us that Christ is the light of the world. Turn to John 1. John 1, 1 through 9. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the beginning, in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now a star is placed on top of a Christmas tree to remember that star Bethlehem. And gifts are exchanged to remind us of the gifts of the Magi to Jesus, the greatest gift that God gave to mankind. But there's another supposed argument against Christmas, especially having a Christmas tree, is that the Bible forbids bringing trees into our homes and decorating them. The passage often cited is Jeremiah 10, 1 through 16, but this passage refers to cutting down trees, chiseling the wood to make an idol, and then decorating the idol with silver and gold for the purpose of bowing down before it to worship it. Do you see the difference? And do you see how Christians wrongly take it out of context? It can't be taken out of context to make a legitimate argument. We see a lot of that with Scripture. People will twist Scripture to fit their agenda. You can't do that. 
Christians who choose to ignore Christmas point to the fact that the Bible doesn't give us the date of Christ's birth either, which is certainly true. December 25th may not even be close to the time when Jesus was born, and arguments on both sides are, are legion. There's so many. Some relating to the climate in Israel, the practices of shepherds in the winter, and the dates of Roman census taking. None of these points are without a certain amount of conjecture, which brings us back to the fact that the Bible doesn't tell us when Jesus was born. Some see this as proof positive that God didn't want us to celebrate the birth, while others see the Bible's silence on the issue as implied approval. Some Christians say that since the world celebrates Christmas, although it's becoming more and more politically correct to refer it to as the holidays, which none of us like, that basically Christians should avoid it. But that's the same argument made by false religions that deny Christ altogether, such as the, like the Jehovah Witnesses who deny Christ's deity. So do you want to fall into that category? Those Christians who do celebrate Christmas often see the occasion as an opportunity to proclaim Christ as a reason for the season. You don't hear people say that a lot anymore. And we need to say that to people who are in other nations or trapped in false religions. Now, as we've seen, there's no legitimate scriptural reason not to celebrate Christmas. At the same time, there's no biblical mandate to celebrate it either. In the end, of course, whether or not to celebrate Christmas is a personal decision. Whatever Christians decide to do regarding Christmas, their views should not be used as a club with which to beat down or denigrate those with opposing views, nor should either view be used as a badge of honor inducing pride over celebrating or not celebrating. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. As in all things, accept one another in Christian love and grace, regardless of our views on Christmas. And I just want to add something else here. We celebrate our loved ones' birthdays and our own. Why would we not celebrate the birth of our Savior? And that's why we do. The next question, should we give gifts at Christmas? Now this is a touchy subject because it borderlines on materialism. And that's where we have to be careful. People take the idea of gift giving at Christmas back to the scripture in Matthew 2, 10 through 11, which says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The Bible gives a wonderful story about the gift God gave us, Jesus Christ, and we can use it as an opportunity to present the gospel and to show love. Giving and receiving gifts can be, a, be part of fulfilling what Paul says about giving in 2 Corinthians 8, 7 through 8. He says, But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. I think that's one of the things that sets true Christians apart, is the giving that we do. Not just monetarily, but with our time and the gifts that God has given us. Paul was talking to the churches who were giving him financial gifts so that he could keep on in the ministry, in his missions. 
We can apply this same lesson to our own lives by giving to others, not just at Christmas, but year-round. And that's what we do. So, with that being said, can gift-giving become the focus of Christmas instead of thanking the Lord for the gift of His Son? We absolutely know that it can. And we know what God's gift was. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The greatest gift ever given. Does giving gifts have to take away from the true meaning of Christmas? No, it doesn't. If we focus on the wonderful gift of salvation the Lord has given us in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Giving to others is a natural expression of that gratitude. The key is our focus. It's our focus. Is your focus on the gift or the ultimate gift giver, our gracious Heavenly Father? James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. So it's all about in your motive. It's all about your focus when it comes to gifts. Okay, no kids in here, right? The next question, what should parents tell their children about Santa Claus? This is a good one. You know, although Santa Claus is a mythical figure, you guys all know that, right? Oh, Sorry, Sue. Um, his creation is based in part on a great Christian man named St. Nicholas of, of Myra, which was in Turkey. He lived in the 4th century. Nicholas was born to Christian parents who left him an inheritance when they died, which he distributed to the poor. He became a priest at a young age and was well known for his compassion and generosity. He had a reputation for giving gifts anonymously, and he would throw bags of money into people's homes and sometimes down their chimneys under the cover of night to avoid being spotted. Nicholas passed away on December 6th, sometime around the 340s or 350s AD, and the day of his death became an annual feast in which children would put out food for Nicholas and straw for his donkey. It was said that the saint would come down from heaven during the night and replace the offerings with toys and treats, but only for the good boys and girls. There are many different versions of the legend of St. Nicholas, and I'm sure you guys have heard some of the other ones, but all are the inspiration for the jolly red-suited gift giver that we now know as Santa Claus. Many Christian parents are torn as to whether or not they should play the Santa game, quote-unquote, with their children. And you guys, some of you guys have young children, and we've been down this road. On one hand, he makes Christmas fun and magical, leaving wonderful holiday memories for years to come. And on the other hand, the focus of Christmas should be on Jesus Christ and how much he has already given us. So, is the story of Santa Claus an innocent addition to Christmas festivities, or is he a subject that should be avoided? Well, parents need to use their own judgment in deciding whether or not to include Santa during the holidays, but here are some things to consider. Children who believe that the gifts they receive Christmas morning are from a magical man with unending resources are less likely to appreciate what they have been given and the sacrifices their parents make in providing them. Greed and materialism can overshadow the holiday season, which is meant to be about giving, loving, and worshiping God. Children whose, whose parents are on a tight budget may feel that they have been overlooked by Santa, or even worse, deemed one of the bad boys or girls. An even more troubling aspect of telling our children that Santa comes down the chimney each year to leave their gifts 
is that it is obviously a lie. We live in a society that believes that lying for the right reason is acceptable, don't we? As long as it doesn't hurt anyone, it's not a problem. That's why our country's in the shape it's in today. Because it's okay that even our own president can lie openly and people say it's all right. Because there's a good reason for it. And it's contrary to what the Bible says. 1 Peter 3.10, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Of course, telling our children that Santa is real is not a, it's not a malicious deception, but it is a lie nonetheless. I mean, unless you still believe in Santa Claus. Although it is probably not typical, some children honestly feel deceived and betrayed by their parents when they find out that Santa is not real. Children trust their parents to tell them the truth, and it's our responsibility not to break this trust. If we do, they will not believe more important things we tell them, such as the truth about Christ, whom they can not see physically. They can see Santa everywhere. This doesn't mean we have to leave Santa completely out of Christmas, though. We can still play the Santa game even if they know it's all pretend. And we have a lot of fun with that at our house. Our kids, none of our kids, they've known for a long time that Santa doesn't exist. But we still play Santa. We have Santa things. We watch movies with Santa. We tell them Santa's coming and they just laugh at us, you know, because it's, it's fun. They can make lifts. They can sit on his lap at the mall, leave out milk and cookies. You know, this won't rob them of the joy of the season, but it gives parents the opportunity to tell their children about godly qualities of the real St. Nicholas who dedicated his life to serving others and made himself into a living example of Jesus Christ. Jesus has to be at the center, center of everything, even with Santa Claus. And I know it's tough because some of you guys have grandchildren or children that believe in Santa Claus. And the last thing you want to do is crush them and say Santa Claus is not real. So my suggestion, you just have to make that slow transition. Make it towards Jesus and go from there. Tell them the story about St. Nicholas. Okay? And it's, that's a tough, it's, it's, a, it's a hard line because all of us grew up the same way. I, I don't know how old I was when I found out that my dad was Santa Claus. I don't remember. But I'm sure that I was, I was hurt by it when I found out that I had been deceived. And you don't want to say, well, I'm not deceiving my kids. Well, we're not intentionally doing that. We want them to have fun and enjoy Christmas, but Jesus Christ is Christmas, and that's where it has to start. In light of that, the next question, how should Christians respond to the war on Christmas? Now, many people perceive, and we don't have to perceive, we know there's a concerted effort to eliminate the word Christmas. We know that. It's, and it's basically become a war on Christmas. It's a war on Christianity that's happening in this country and in this world. The stories seem to be coming more frequently. Grade school choirs sing, we wish you a happy holiday instead of we wish you a Merry Christmas for a winter concert. Ethan had a band concert at his school the other day and I was really thankful because they still sang traditional Christmas hymns and they said the name of Jesus and I was very happy to hear that. A library invites holiday displays from the community provided that the displays have no religious connotation. The stables can have animals, but no people in it. I just read the other day that an Air Force base made them take it down a manger scene. You know, it's all possible to do 
your Christmas shopping and never see or hear the word Christmas in any store. It's really possible. There's nothing wrong with saying happy holidays or season's greetings, but if someone says happy holidays for the sole purpose of not saying Merry Christmas, then we are right to question what's going on. Why is the word Christmas censored? Why do public schools celebrate everything from uh, Kwanzaa to La Bafana the Christmas Witch and ban the nativity all in the name of inclusion and tolerance? You know, one reason put forward by those seeking to avoid the word Christmas is that it would offend non-Christians. Well, we know from what Jesus said in Scripture that God's word is going to be offensive. And mother and father will be hated by their children and vice versa. Jesus said that this would happen, that people would turn on each other. He didn't come to bring peace. But there was a recent Gallup poll that said only a very small percent of adults in America say it bothers them when the store makes specific references to Christmas. And the people that are fighting this war against Christianity and Christmas are a very small number. They just have all the big resources. That's the problem. The exclusion of Christmas, then, is not really a way to adapt to a more diverse culture, but a way to engineer a more secular culture that excludes God. It's nothing to do with Christmas. It's nothing to do with all It's It's about kicking God out, is all it is when it comes down to it. Many times, the arguments against Christmas programs and displays, they're couched in political terms, but the bias against Christmas goes much deeper than that. This is primarily a spiritual battle, not a political one. And we know that. How should Christians respond to the use of happy holidays and the exclusion of Christmas? Here are some suggestions. Celebrate Christmas. Let the joy of the season show in your life. Teach your family the significance of Jesus' birth and make the Christmas traditions meaningful in your home, which most of you, I'm sure, do. Wish others Merry Christmas. When confronted with the happy holidays, get specific and wish the greeter say Merry Christmas. You may be surprised at how many respond in kind. If you really want to get technical, say Happy Birthday, Jesus. See how that rubs them. Even if you're met with resistance, don't let it dampen your cheer. Remember Ebenezer Scrooge? His nephew was rebuffed year after year by Scrooge. But he still, what did he do every year? Wished him Merry Christmas. And always invited him to Christmas dinner. Speak the truth in love, as it says in Ephesians 4.15. The Christmas season is a wonderful opportunity to share Christ's love and the gospel message. He's the reason for the season. There's that term again that's been lost. You used to see it on TV, it'd say reason for the season. Now you don't even see that anymore. Pray for those in positions of power and pray for wisdom. Pray for revival so that Christmas, instead of being offensive, would be honored by all. Now, do we know if that's going to come? We don't know. It doesn't look like it, but we know God can do all things. So we pray for wisdom. We pray for the people in power. We pray for our country. We pray for those who hate Christmas and Christians and everything. God. The next question, we'll kind of switch gears. Why did the Magi bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Jesus? Why those three gifts? Well, Matthew 2 tells us that the Magi, or wise men, traveled from the east in search of the Christ child. They inquired of King Herod where they might find him, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And we know how Herod reacted to that. For we saw 
his star when it rose and have come to worship him. That's Matthew 2, 2. Upon finding the baby Jesus, they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. Gold, we know, is a precious metal, and as such was a very valuable commodity, as it is today. Its value could very well have financed Joseph and Mary's trip to Egypt. The Bible does not tell us any other significance of these three gifts. However, tradition has it that there is a deeper meaning for each of these three. We know that God uses a lot of, there's a lot of symbolism in Scripture. Gold is a symbol of divinity and is mentioned throughout the Bible. Pagan idols were often made from gold, and the Ark of the Covenant was overlaid with gold. And we know that Solomon's temple, there was tons of gold inside of there. The gift of gold to the Christ child was symbolic of his divinity as God in the flesh. Now, frankincense is a white resin or gum. It is obtained from a tree by making incisions in the bark and allowing the gum to flow out. It is highly fragrant when burned and was therefore used in worship where it was burned as a pleasant offering to God, as it says in Exodus 30:34. Frankincense is a symbol of holiness and righteousness. The gift of frankincense to, to the Christ child was symbolic of his willingness to become a sacrifice, holy, giving himself up as a burnt offering. And then myrrh was also a product of Arabia and was obtained from a tree in the same manner as frankincense. It was a spice and, it was, and was used in embalming. It was also sometimes mingled with wine to form an article of drink. Such a drink was given to our Savior when he was about to be crucified as a staggering potion. We know that they tried to offer him. And that's in Mark 15, 23. And we know in Matthew 27, 34, it's referred to as gall. Myrrh symbolizes bitterness, suffering, and affliction. The baby Jesus would grow to suffer greatly as a man and would pay the ultimate price when he gave his life on the cross for all who would believe in him. So now that we've switched to the manger and everything else, the next question is why is the virgin birth so important? It's crucially important. First, we'll look at how Scripture describes the event. In, Mary, in response to Mary's question, how will this be, as she says in Luke one thirty four. Gabriel says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Luke 1.35 The angel encourages Joseph to not fear marrying Mary with these words. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew states that the virgin was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Galatians 4.4 also teaches the virgin birth. God sent his son born of a woman. From these passages, it is certainly clear that Jesus' birth was a result of the Holy Spirit working within Mary's body. The spirit, which is immaterial, and the material, which was Mary's womb, were both involved. Mary, of course, could not impregnate herself. And in that sense, she was just simply a vessel. And that's what God used her for. She's not to be worshipped, as we know some churches do. Mary's not deity. Jesus Christ is. Only God could perform the miracle of the incarnation. However, denying a physical connection between Mary and Jesus would imply that Jesus was not truly human. That's the problem a lot of people have. They don't talk about the hypostatic union. Scripture teaches that Jesus was fully human with a physical body like ours. This he received from Mary. At the same time, Jesus was fully God with an eternal sinless nature. John 1.14 solidifies that. 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And then Hebrews 2.14-17 Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren." that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus was not born in sin. He had no sin nature. It was seen that the sin nature, as we know, is passed down from generation to generation through the man. And that's touched on in Romans 5, 12, 17, and 19. The virgin birth circumvented the transmission of the sin nature and allowed the eternal God to become a perfect man. That could only happen if God was Jesus' Father. And the Holy Spirit, we're told in Luke, came over Mary and impregnated her with Jesus Christ. Therefore, the sin nature was taken out. Next question comes in, why did God send Jesus when he did? Why not earlier? Why not later? That's all debatable, but they have a few good points here that, that I'd like to say. This verse declares that God the Father sent His Son when the time had fully come. That's what Galatians 4.4 4 says. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law. There were many things occurring at the time of the first century that, at least by human reasoning, seemed to make it ideal for Christ to come then. Number one, there was a great anticipation among the Jews of that time that the Messiah would come. The Roman rule over Israel made the Jews hungry for the Messiah's coming. Rome had unified much of the world under its government, giving a sense of unity to the various lands. Also, because the empire was relatively peaceful, travel was possible, allowing the early Christians to spread the gospel. Such freedom to travel would have been impossible in other eras, as it is now. A lot of countries Christians can't get into and preach the gospel. While Rome had conquered militarily, Greece had conquered culturally. A common form of the Greek language which was different from the classical Greek, was the trade language and was spoken throughout the empire, just like English is the trade language now. Making it possible to communicate the gospel to many different people groups through one common language. The fact that many false idols had failed to give them victory over the Roman conquerors caused many to abandon the worship of these idols. They went to their gods seeking redemption. Help us conquer it, and they couldn't find it. So this, this was a cause for them to, to go to the one true God. And at the same time, in the more cultured cities, the Greek philosophy and science of the time left others spiritually empty in the same way that the atheism of communist government leaves a spiritual void today. The mystery religions of the time emphasized a savior God and required worshipers to offer bloody sacrifices, thus making the gospel of Christ, which involved one ultimate sacrifice, believable to them. The Greeks also believed in the immortality of the soul, but not the body. 
The Roman army recruited soldiers from among the provinces, introducing these men to Roman cultures and to ideas such as the gospel that had not reached those outlying provinces yet. God used the Roman Empire to spread his gospel, even through Roman soldiers and Roman citizens. I think he knows what he's doing. You know, the earliest introduction of the gospel to Britain was a result of the efforts of Christian soldiers that were stationed there by the Romans. Because that was Britain was still considered barbaric in those days. And the above statements, these are based on men looking at the time and speculating about why that particular point in history was a good time for Christ to come. But we understand that God's ways are not our ways, as it says in Isaiah 55, 8. And these may or may not have been some of the reasons for why he chose that particular time to send his son. From the context of Galatians 3 and 4, it is evident that God sought to lay a foundation through the Jewish law that would prepare for the coming of the Messiah. The law was meant to help people understand the depth of their sinfulness and that they were incapable of keeping the law so that they might more readily accept the cure for that sin through Jesus the Messiah. Another good point was Rome allowed the Jews to still practice their law. They could have easily said no, but they let them. They allowed them to do all of the things that they did within the law of Moses. The sacrifices in the temple, everything. The law was also put in charge to lead people to Jesus as the Messiah. It did this through its many prophecies concerning the Messiah which Jesus fulfilled. Add to this a sacrificial system that pointed to the need for a sacrifice for sin as well as its own inadequacy with each sacrifice always requiring later additional sacrifices. You know, Old Testament history also painted pictures of the person and work of Christ through several events and religious feats such as the willingness of Abraham to offer up Isaac or the details of the Passover during the exodus from Egypt. Finally, Christ came when he did in fulfillment of specific prophecy. Daniel 9, 24-27 speaks of the 70 weeks or the 70 sevens. From the context, these weeks or sevens we know refer to groups of seven years, not weeks, not actual weeks or seven days. <clears throat> They're actually seven years. We can examine history and line up the details of the first 69 weeks and we know the 70th week takes place at a future event, which we know is a seven-year tribulation. And the countdown of the 70 weeks begins with the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, which is in verse 25 of Daniel 9. The command was given in 445 B.C., and that's in Nehemiah 2.5. After seven sevens plus 62 sevens, which is 69 times seven years, the prophecy states, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and that the end will come like a flood, meaning major destruction in verse 26. Here we have an unmistakable reference to the Savior's death on the cross. And we know what happened, what Jesus told him in Matthew, that every stone in the temple would be torn down. And we know in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. A century ago, in his book, The Coming Prince, Sir Robert Anderson gave detailed calculations of the 69 weeks using prophetic years, allowing for leap years, errors in the calendar, the change from B.C. to A.D., etc., and figured that the 69 weeks ended on the very day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, five days before his death. I'd say that's a pretty accurate prophecy. 
Now, whether one uses this timetable or not, the point is that the timing of Christ's incarnation ties in with this detailed prophecy recorded by Daniel over 500 years beforehand. The timing of Christ's incarnation was such that the people of that time were prepared for His coming. The people of every century since have more than sufficient evidence that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah through His fulfillment of the Scriptures that pictured and prophesied His coming in great detail. We, we have it all now. All we have to do is look at the whole scope and we can tell, yeah, that's Him. I mean, even if you don't know anything about Scripture. And I've, I've seen examples, I've heard testimonies where someone knew nothing about Jesus, knew nothing about God, and they read the Bible and they put together that He was God. And it saved them. They read it with an open mind. And then the last question, what is the true meaning of Christmas? We know the true meaning of Christmas is love. And we know John 3, 16 and 17. We know the love, the gift that God gave us. And we know that He didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And if you go to save something, that's out of love. The true meaning of Christmas is the celebration of this incredible act of love. The real Christmas story is the story of God's becoming a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. Why did God do such a thing? Because He loves us. Why was Christmas necessary? Because we needed a Savior. Why does God love us so much? Because He is love itself. 1 John 4.8 says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So why do we celebrate Christmas each year? We celebrate our Savior's birth, and it's out of gratitude for what God did for us. We remember His birth by giving each other gifts, by worshiping Him, and being especially conscious of the poor and less fortunate. The true meaning of Christmas is love. God loved His own and provided a way, the only way, for us to spend eternity with Him. He gave His only Son to take our punishment for our sins. He paid the full price. And we are free from condemnation. We accept that free gift of love. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrated His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The gift is waiting for us to receive it. We've all received it. There's so many out there that, that haven't. And they need to know during Christmas that that gift is available to them. It's the greatest gift that, that there ever will be. So just remember that with Christmas. We do all celebrating. There's nothing wrong with any of this. I love it. I absolutely love it. But when we put up that Christmas tree, when we wear our outfits, when we put up the lights, when we give gifts, it has to be for Jesus. It has to be because of Jesus. And that's it. And if we're not doing that, then that's what we need to fix. Okay? That's what we have to keep our focus on. And that's what our motive needs to be. We're doing it because of Jesus Christ and the gift that God gave us.